Hey, I'm Bob McMahon from the History Department and the Mershon Center, and it's my pleasure today to introduce Klaus Laris, who will speak to us on the U.S. and the United States of Europe, a comparison of the Cold War and the post-Cold War eras, years. Uh, Klaus is a professor of contemporary history and international affairs at the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland. He's taught in many different uh, universities and held fellowships across the United States and much of, of Western Europe. His research has focused predominantly on American, French, British, and German foreign policy during the Cold War years and more recently during the post-Cold War years, which is the subject of his, um, his current research project. He's written um, more than half a dozen books, most recently and, and perhaps most notably Churchill's Cold War, which came out in 2002 with Yale University Press. And he's also written The Blackwell Companion to Europe since 1945, which is really an essential research tool for anyone working in European international history or European politics in the period since World War II. He also had a book out earlier this year on U.S. Secretaries of State and Transatlantic Relations since 1945, which was published by Rutledge. He's received uh, numerous awards and fellowships for his work and in support of his research. A few years ago, he held the Henry Kissinger Chair at the Library of Congress, and if time permits, he might, he might share some stories of um, his several conversations uh, with, with Henry the Great over the last several years. Um, he did his graduate work at the University of Cologne, as well as uh, the London School of Economics. So without any further introduction, let me uh, allow Klaus to come to the podium. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much for the very nice introduction. I couldn't have done it any better myself. <laughs> uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for coming out, particularly considering the nice weather outside and the, the, the lunchtime, I guess. Um, it's very good to be here. And today I would like to talk about the ambivalent attitude and politics of the United States towards the ever closer integration of Europe uh, since the cold, during the Cold War and the uh, post-Cold War period. Basically, I want to take it from the age of Truman and Churchill to the age of Obama, if you can yet call it like that. But I've got a question for you. What do Obama and Winston Churchill have in common? Hmm. <laughs> well, for a long time, no one believed either of them could actually become the leader of their respective countries. It required an emergency situation. In Churchill's case, it was a Second World War. In Obama's case, it was George W. Bush. <laughs> <laughs> Um, British politician Margaret Thatcher once said that I'm extraordinarily patient, provided I get my own way in the end. And in a nutshell, I think this could also be described as Washington's politics towards Europe since 1945. The Americans were patient, but in the end they insisted on their design, how they envisaged the future of Europe to look at. 
Before, before this audience today, I don't think I need to emphasize the importance still of transatlantic relations. In Washington, the foreign policy talk of the day is, of course, about Afghanistan. It's about China and Iraq and the Iran, of course, a little bit about North Korea. And not many people talk about transatlantic relations in Europe at the moment. But I think it is clear that Europe's most trusted allies in the world are still the Europeans. Transatlantic relations provide an element of stability in an increasingly complex and also chaotic world. Thus, looking at the highly ambivalent politics of the United States towards Europe and the development of a united European continent is still of the utmost importance, I feel. It is also a topic that has been quite neglected in the literature. I would like to argue that the notion of, the so, of so-called American exceptionalism does not make much sense on the whole. I believe that at least with regard to Washington's policies towards the European continent since World War II and indeed since the end of the Cold War in 1990, the United States has largely acted like a traditional great power, but a great power with brains, at least on occasion. In fact, I believe the phrase enlightened self-interest or also calculated self-interest is appropriate when analyzing American politics towards Europe and European integration since 1945. Looking at the United States as predominantly a benign hegemon as, uh, or as the creator of an integrationist empire, as is frequently done in the literature, does not capture the essence of American foreign policy, I believe. U.S. foreign policy was a lot more hard-hitting and a lot more egotistic, if you like, than the, world, uh, than the word benign implies. Essentially, the United States was and is a great power, which on occasion is capable of displaying an impressive amount of enlightened self-interest. Incidentally, President Obama recently picked up on the term enlightened uh, self-interest. In his speech in Oslo, when he received the Nobel Peace Prize, he said, the United States of America has helped underwrite global security for more than six decades with the blood of our citizens and the strength of our arms. We have borne this burden not because we seek to impose our will. We have done so out of an enlightened self-interest because we seek a better future for our children and grandchildren. In fact, I would like to argue that enlightened self-interest and the imposition of America's will is not a contradiction at all. It is not mutually exclusive. In fact, this was actually the policy that the U.S. pursued towards Europe ever since the days of the Marshall Plan all those many years ago. In the following, I would like to first look at the U.S. and European integration during the Cold War and then move in my second part to the post-Cold uh, post War years, uh, to the 1990s. I wish to pay, to pay special attention to the foundation of American interest in the unity of Europe in the late 40s and 1950s, and then also emphasize the turning point, or what I have identified, excuse me, what I have identified as a turning point uh, regarding American-European relations in the early to mid-1970s. And then I would like to move to the turning point of the, the end of the Cold War. And I would like to do all this in the next three to four hours or so. I hope that is okay. <laughs> well, Bob told me I should really limit myself to something like 35 minutes, and I try to, to stick to that. There's a sigh of relief, I know. <laughs> okay, let's move to the United States and European integration uh, during the Cold War. And first I would like to look at the golden age of the late 40s and 1950s and then move to the turning point of the early 1970s. All American administrations and almost all Western European governments supported close transatlantic relations and the ever closer integration of Western Europe during the Cold War, or at least so they said. 
American enthusiasm for the creation of a united Europe was greatest in the decades after the Marshall Plan, the grand scheme for the post-war reconstruction of the European continent. Beginning with the Marshall Plan, it was Washington's intention to stabilize and reconstruct the European continent with the help of generous economic and financial aid. The thinking of Jean Monnet, the French bureaucrat and political strategist with extensive personal ties to many influential American politicians, uh, had clearly fallen on fruitful ground. American politicians thus developed the insight that only a united Western Europe at peace with itself would be able to create a concerted front against the military and ideological threat from the Soviet Union. Moreover, only such a Europe would ensure the reconciliation of the Federal Republic of Germany with the Western world, and of course, in particular, with France. Underlying America's post-war vision was above all the assumption that only a fully integrated, stable, and economically viable Europe would develop into a peaceful and democratic continent. Achieving prosperity in Western Europe appeared to depend on the creation of a unified single market. The lessons from America's own past, as well as the country's federalist structure, were to serve as a model to achieve a single European market. It would prevent economic nationalism and lead to a truly free and multilateral transatlantic economic system. In due course, this strategy would have the advantage um, of making unnecessary the continuation of American aid to Europe. On the whole, it was hoped by many in Washington that in due time, European integration would enable the self-healing forces of the free market to take over. Active American governmental support and interference were always regarded as limited and temporary, at least, at least in the beginning. In the heady, enthusiastic days of the late 1940s and throughout the 1950s, it appeared as if the eventual unification of the European continent would not only ensure permanent peace and well-being on the continent, but also America's long-term economic prosperity would be guaranteed by the unity of Europe. Thus, Washington's reasons for supporting European integration were not altruistic at all, but they nevertheless were also of great benefit to the Western Europeans. So it was mutually satisfactory. Everyone seemed to benefit from it if it worked out as was designed and envisioned by the, uh, the United States. However, European integration did not function as well as had been expected in Washington. Instead of being all-embracing, initially it appeared that it tended to concentrate only on a limited number of countries and only on a limited uh, number of uh, economic sectors, uh, like coal and steel. Moreover, it was clearly protectionist and discriminatory. The Europeans embarked on the Schuman Plan, as you may remember, in 1950, the coal and steel community, but they at the same time erected barriers against all other coal and steel uh, experts into the European continent, including protectionism against American coal and steel deliveries. That was, of course, not what the United States had had in mind initially. Um, thus, there were also other European endeavors to keep the economic competition from the United States and the dollar area out of Europe. Yet, throughout the 1950s, Washington continued to regard this as a temporary phenomenon, which would not be able to prevent the gradual development of full multilateralism. Washington, of course, never approved of protectionist uh, 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 um, um, measures by the Europeans and uh, endeavors to keep 
American, ex, uh, American industrial goods out. But throughout the 1950s, it was regarded as necessary in order to get the Europeans back on their feet. And, of course, the United States was well able to afford it. The United States was such a, had such a flourishing economy, was such a wealthy and rich and dominant country that it didn't seem to matter. A little bit of protectionism from the European, who cared? They could easily accommodate that, at least in the early 1950s and mid-1950s. Yet by the end of the 1950s, the view that geopolitics was more important than mere economic and trade matters was increasingly challenged from within the American government. The speedy recovery of the European economies, above all epitomized by the West German economic miracle and the discovery of structural deficiencies in the American economic performance, ensured that the Europeans, and in particular the six, the six founding members of the EEC, came to be seen as serious competitors. Um, two European uh, economists, Alan Milward and Frederico Romero, have argued that from 1958, the year the EEC began working, America's attitude towards European integration became much more skeptical. I believe this is somewhat of an exaggerate, uh, exaggeration. From 1958, American doubts uh, about what the Europeans were up to increased. But that attitude that they still had to support the European continent and European economic reconstruction, that uh, was still there and predominated uh, the thinking within American governmental circles. However, it is correct that within the Commerce Department and within the Treasury, uh, thoughts or skepticism about um, uh, European pro uh, protectionism increased. But the elite, the real decisive players like the President and the Secretary of State, they really looked at the geopolitical dimension and believed uh, the threat of the Soviet Union, um, the, the Western integration of the, uh, of the uh, European nations was so important that some economic protectionism and some economic discrimination could well, uh, should be accepted uh, throughout the 1960s in order to make sure the European economists uh, uh, began to flourish properly. Uh, and also in the 1960s, Washington began to pay more attention to accommodating the Europeans and their attempts to achieve greater independence, not least in the security sphere. Part of this strategy was the effort made during the Kennedy and Johnson administrations to introduce a sea-based multilateral force, MLF, to give the Europeans, in particular the West Germans and the French, the impression of participating in NATO's nuclear decision-making process while keeping them firmly under the American-controlled Western nuclear umbrella. It was hoped that any Franco-German nuclear collaboration and the development of a German atomic bomb could thus be avoided. However, Washington had no desire to give up any real power. In the course of the 1960s, Washington's political, military, as well as economic predominance within the transatlantic alliance was criticized more often than hitherto uh, on the European continent. But on the whole, it was still not seriously challenged. The only notable exception was de Gaulle, French President de Gaulle who was, of course, openly anti-American and who withdrew the French from NATO in 1966. Although the United States were deeply angered and quite perturbed by the general's deep-seated anti-American attitude, it was realized in Washington that not so much France but West Germany and its booming economy was the key to America's role in Europe. It was thus not so much France but the Bonn Republic which had to be kept in NATO. Without West Germany, NATO, including Washington's dominance within the Atlantic Alliance, was bound to unravel. Without France, the, uh, the American alliance system could survive, and it did, of course. 
Fortunate for the, United uh, uh, for the United States and for obvious reasons, West Germany was much more dependent on American goodwill than France. There were an increasing number of politicians in the United States who questioned whether the process of European integration would in fact eventually lead to economic, political and military benefits for the United States. But they were still in a minority uh, in the course of the 1960s. On the whole, most politicians in Washington still regarded the process towards a more integrated and thus economically and militarily stronger Europe under American leadership as vital to compete successfully in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So that old attitude, why we need uh, European unity, which first developed in the late 1940s, that still was around throughout the 1960s. Increasingly, people questioned it, but it was still the predominant philosophy in American governmental circles. Um, the, when you look at the documents from the Johnson administration, it becomes clear that Johnson was clearly distracted by the Vietnam War, paid much less attention to the Europeans than previous administrations. But his basic philosophy, his attitude that... Uh, uh, you, the United States needed Europe and should support Europe and that there was a close transatlantic alliance. That basic philosophy did not change. So in pragmatic policy making, of course, he didn't have the time and inclination to, to focus as much attention and energy on Europe. And there, as you may have heard, there, when the German um, Chancellor Erhard visited uh, Johnson and asked for some economic favors, Johnson really, in a very brutal way, rejected his request and he couldn't care less that Erhard, as a consequence, lost power in, in West Germany. But I think that does not uh, reflect Johnson's basic attitude. It, it only shows that how much under stress he was, how much he focused on the Vietnam War, but it did not mean that he did not appreciate the Europeans or that he had given up on the transatlantic alliance. I think that turning point, that only came in the 1970s when the United States decided that the relations with the Europeans were less close, less important than before. And that turning point came in the early uh, 1970s. And I would like to um, come to that now. Surveying some of the major events that shaped international relations in the first half of the 1970s, historian Tony Judd has referred to a protean moment in the international and national history of our times and to the fact that Nixon's presidency coincided with such an important turning point in world affairs. This also, I believe, was the case regarding transatlantic relations. In particular, in respect to America's policy towards the unity of, uh, of the European continent, the early 1970s represented an important and indeed crucial turning point or watershed um, uh, which changed America's relations with its European allies decisively and, I believe, irreversibly. The repercussions of this turning point could be felt throughout the remainder of the Cold War and, indeed, beyond. Even before entering office, Nixon and Kissinger had realized that transatlantic relations needed to be set on a new footing. And indeed, during the first few years of the Nixon administration, um, relations with Western Europe underwent a rapid transformation. Yet this was not so much because of strategic reassessment of the transatlantic relationship initially. Instead, it came about by default and was largely due to Washington's neglect of relations with Western Europe. 
This included the process of European integration, which the new administration treated with a noticeable dose of disdain. They simply didn't believe in it. The Nixon administration was still focused on bilateralism. It wasn't really focused on uh, the EC Commission in Brussels, for example, or on the whole process of getting to a, a, a united Europe. While they, of course, uh, uh, realized that and noticed that something was on the way, and they took it sort of seriously, they never thought it had any, any uh, future, at least not in the near term. Robert Schetzel, U.S. Ambassador to the EEC from September 1966 until his retirement in October 1972, concluded in early 1969 that for the next four years it was difficult to detect any coherent pattern in American policy towards Europe. By 1973, he wrote, many European policymakers were convinced that it was no longer American policy to support European unity. And uh, as Bob mentioned, uh, I've had a few conversations with Kissinger, and the last one last Thursday, and I asked him about Schätzel, and Kissinger clearly said that he greatly disliked the man. And so there was no love lost between the American ambassador in Brussels and the administration at home. And that was felt, you know. Kissinger never really um, brought much understanding or respect towards Brussels and the EC Commission and what was beginning to become an important factor in European politics. Indeed, both Nixon and Kissinger found it difficult to take the development toward a more united Europe seriously. Although it was Kissinger who had quipped in the early 1970s, who do I call if I want to talk to Europe, it became obvious that Kissinger and his colleagues in the Nixon administration were not really interested in having to deal with a generally united European continent. It appeared to be a lot easier and much more advantageous to rely on America's traditional bilateral links with the Europeans. And in his memoirs, German Chancellor Willy Brandt emphasized that Henry Kissinger did not like to think of Europeans speaking with one voice. He preferred to juggle with Paris, London, and Bonn, playing them off against another, uh, playing them off uh, uh, against another in, uh, in the old style. In the difficult economic times of the 1970s, Washington increasingly resented the ever-growing competition and exclusionary trade habits of the EC, which seemed to challenge America's leadership position. And as you know, the Nixon administration found itself in really dire economic circumstances. And suddenly, that uh, traditional protectionist attitude of the Europeans and that discriminatory attitude of the Europeans in economic terms, suddenly it became more important. Suddenly it could not be tolerated anymore because the United States itself was having to face severe, uh, more severe economic times. Um, and, of course, in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate, the United States underwent a deep identity crisis. The situation encouraged policymakers in Washington to indulge in navel-gazing. They were merely ready to concentrate on the larger themes of international politics and neglected the many complex European affairs. As you know, the Nixon administration focused on China, the Soviet Union, and the Vietnam War, and that was about it. These were, of course, very large and important areas, but not much energy remained uh, for, for, for example, looking and considering uh, the European continent. And then, of course, the financial burden of the Vietnam War, the lingering costs of financing the domestic great society programs of the 1960s, as well as the two oil crises of the 1970s, which were accompanied by higher energy prices, meant that America's economic and financial position was much less secure than in the previous decades. 
The United States had not only accumulated a considerable balance of payments deficit, but from 1971 onwards, for the first time for almost 100 years, it also had a considerable trade deficit, as well as inflationary problems, rising unemployment, almost stagnant wages, and the position of the dollar, the world's leading reserve currency, was weakening. Perhaps that reminds us of our problems today. The reputation of many European currencies, in particular that of the West German mark, as a solid haven for investors, however, was becoming stronger. And President Richard Nixon accused the EC of unfair trade practices and demanded that the Europeans should lower their tariffs and allow more American goods to enter the common market. In particular, he made the EC's protectionist common agricultural market, uh, uh, common agricultural policy cap responsible for America's trade deficit. And this was also not entirely wrong. But above all, the Nixon administration viewed the overvaluation of the dollar as responsible as it helped European, particularly West German and Japanese exports. Moreover, it was true that both the EC and the EFTA discriminated against all non-essential American goods by imposing quotas, exchange controls, and import licenses. And despite all talk of partnership and cooperative burden sharing, when the United States administration was unable to get its way and failed to obtain American support for its attempt to overcome America's financial and monetary difficulties, Nixon would embark on rather ruthless economic and trade policies. This would damage transatlantic relations a great deal and leave a lasting impact. As one monetary expert put it when he characterized the economic approach of the new of the Nixon administration, he wrote, President Richard Nixon spoke exclusively the language of national power and national advantage. International cooperation appeared to be suspect. International agencies futile. And that refers to economic concerns, not to other concerns. To cut a long story short, it shall be sufficient to say that this first decisive turning point in transatlantic relations, which gradually materialized in the years 1971, 1972, and later, consisted of above all two major closely interlinked elements. First, in the early 1970s, the Nixon administration decided that in line with the so-called Nixon doctrine and a limited American retrenchment from a position of imperial overstretch, the Europeans would have to look after themselves not in a military sense, but in a political sense. Progress was a process of European integration had to be made by the Europeans themselves. The United States would no longer push the Europeans to integrate and unify their continent. From now on, this would be up to the Europeans. Until this turning point, the United States had in fact been one of the main drivers behind the further integration of the European continent. For example, the United States was very active in the background to, per to persuade the Europeans to conclude and ratify the, um, ratify the Schuman uh, Treaty of 1950, as well as the Rome Treaties of 1957, which then led to the establishment of the European Community. Yet, by the early 1970s, Kissinger and Nixon decided that the organization of Europe was for the Europeans to decide. Washington would keep out of it, while not actively opposing moves towards the creation of a more supranational organized European community, it was clear that the Nixon White House preferred a confederate structure in Europe and not a real a creation of a united state on the European continent. While they never actively opposed it, they certainly stopped supporting it actively. If the Europeans wished to go down that road, fair enough, but the United States would not push them down that road. That was really uh, coming to an end while Nixon was in power. 
The second element of that crucial turning point of the 19, early 1970s uh, referred to America's declining economic performance. And the Nixon administration, because of that, the Nixon administration began to view the EEC increasingly as an economic competitor and potential geopolitical rival. Nixon himself said, with reference to America's early support for European integration, that Washington had actually contributed to the birth of a Frankenstein monster on the European continent, and he used these very words. His Treasury Secretary, the formidable John Connolly, put it succinctly when he said, my basic approach is that the foreigners are out to screw us. Our job is to screw them first. And part of this somewhat unusual approach to foreign economic relations was the abandonment of the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates and the so-called Nixon shocks of August 1971. From the early 1970s, transatlantic economic competition and trade rivalries became a lot more serious and were conducted in a much more vicious and volatile manner than had been the case hitherto. And of course, there had always been trade rivalries. There had always been some sort of economic con competition before the early 1970s. But that was at a you can say, a more constructive level, a more benign level that was less vicious and less, less hard-hitting. And above all, the United States always didn't take it that seriously because they were in a position to economically dominate so some discrimination from the Europeans could be tolerated. They didn't like it, but it could be tolerated. It wasn't a big deal, so to speak. In the early 1970s, it definitely became a big deal. And the United States, the Nixon administration, uh, decided uh, actively to take on the Europeans. That could not continue because America had to compete on the world market and you could not allow other countries, including the European allies, to mess America about and, uh, you know, and uh, constrain their economic, uh, their ability to, to trade and their ability to export their own goods. Thus, the benign and enlightened relationship between the United States and Europe, which had characterized transatlantic relations since the Second World War, radically changed in the course of the 1970s. The United States had begun to look after its own economic well-being much more than hitherto, while simultaneously neglecting relations with the European allies. At the same time, spurred on by American disinterest, the European allies embarked on um, a more active development of their own integration by, for example, uh, intensifying the use of instruments of, great <coughs> excuse me, of greater European integration, such as European political cooperation and early plans for European monetary union. So, in summary, this state of affairs essentially remained. And I don't want to go into the rest of the Cold War that much in detail, but after the early to mid-1970s, and then, of course, we had also Kissinger's Year of Europe, which was a serious attempt to overcome the gap between the transatlantic allies, but totally backfired. And under Carter, relations <coughs> got even worse. Under Reagan, relations got Again, almost uh, worse than they had been under Carter. So throughout the remainder of the Cold War, uh, transatlantic relations were pretty dire and not all that good. And if it hadn't been for the Soviet Union and the threat which was still uh, looming in the East, the alliance may well have broken up. When you talk to politicians these days, then they always refer to the uh, Ford administration as 
much more constructive than both Nixon or uh, Carter and Reagan with regard to transatlantic relations. And that is probably uh, the case because Ford had much better personal relations with the various European leaders and he had a calming influence, but that was only very transitionary. Deep down, the structure of transatlantic relations was really moving apart, was going into the wrong direction, if you like. And only with the end of the Cold War, uh, the transatlantic alliance found together again under Bush Sr. So, uh, and I, on, in summary, I would say, both under Ford as well as under Bush Sr., transatlantic relations were relatively good. The rest, Nixon, uh, Carter, and Reagan, they were pretty poor, uh, if one wants to summarize it. Um, then the second major turning point in the uh, transatlantic relationship came, of course, with the end of the Cold War in 1989-90. But this turning point could not immediately be felt because, as I said, under Bush Sr., relations were constructive and not bad because, in a way, there was a feeling they had to pull together. You know, you saw the disintegration of the current world structure system of the entire Soviet Union of Eastern Europe, so the transatlantic allies actually did come together and cooperated quite successfully in, for example, German unification, in the integration of Eastern Europe, uh, and also of managing the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So these were relatively good times. But then Clinton came into office and the Europeans more or less at the same time embarked on the Maastricht Treaty. And the Maastricht Treaty seemed to create a new European superpower. At least that was how it was viewed in Washington. And already during the end of the Bush senior administration and particularly then at the beginning of the uh, new uh, Clinton administration, um, American policymakers became quite concerned that in Europe there was something developing which would be a serious rival and competitor and not just a partner. And they saw rivalry in the economic field and also in the military field because there was talk about the Europeans building up their own uh, security structure, getting rid of NATO, leaving NATO or weakening NATO by uh, setting up a European alternative. There was talk about um, uh, setting up uh, uh, European security headquarters in Brussels and th there was general fear that the Europeans would uh, undermine and dilute NATO. In the course of the 1990s, and the wars in the former Yugoslavia, that was disproven. As you know, and I summarize, of course, the European performance in the wars, the civil wars in the former Yugoslavia was dire. They really were not able to, to militarily act at all, both in the Bosnia war of the early 1990s and then also in Kosovo in 1999. Without American help, without American interference, uh, it would have been very questionable how the Yugoslav wars would have brought to an end. And um, uh, the, that early statement by the Luxembourg foreign minister when the Bosnian war erupted, this is the moment of Europe, we'll deal with it. Uh, and initially the United States had actually approved of that because you know, they were not, the Bush administration had initially not been too keen in getting involved in the Yugoslavia mess. And also Clinton, of course, wasn't interested in getting involved in, and it was a real mess. Uh, but 
it became quickly clear that despite British and French relatively strong military uh, setup, uh, they couldn't, the Europeans were not capable of handling it. So the United States had to become involved, for example, by the Dayton they negotiated, as you know, under the leadership of Richard Holbrook, they uh, negotiated the Dayton Agreement, uh, which ended the Bosnian uh, War, but also uh, the Kosovo War without American help and support. Uh, I don't know what the outcome would have been. And that, and then, and though that, um, uh, um, to cut a long story short, that in a way, paradoxically, reassured the United States that militarily the Europeans were not becoming a major rival. However, in 1998, uh, Tony Blair and Chirac uh, uh, agreed on the St. Malo Treaty, and that was an attempt to create a rapid European reaction force. And I've only recently talked to a Pentagon official who had also been in office during uh, that time, and he said we were all shocked. We were really uh, concerned that the St. Malo Treaty would lead to a European alternative to NATO, However, within a year, it was clear the Europeans neither had the will nor perhaps the financial resources to really set up a European rapid reaction force. It, you know, it still is uh, not really workable. There's a very small European reaction force. It's not really uh, capable of being a, a, a real player in, uh, in the world. And so even the Samalo impetus of, of 1998 soon petered out. And that, of course, in a way reassured the United States that NATO would remain the predominant military instrument of the Western world and that the Europeans were not becoming a serious rival. At the same time, however, one also has to say the United States was also a little disappointed that all European military endeavors, in a way, petered out, didn't come to anything, because it also meant, of course, as the Obama administration has realized in Afghanistan, for example, that it all rests on American shoulders. That's, there is not much military support to be expected from uh, the Europeans, at least not as much as the United States would like. So it was, in a way, paradoxical. They were relieved that the Europeans were not becoming a major military power. On the other hand, they were also a little disappointed that it also meant Ameri uh, European support wasn't forthcoming. That was a military dimension, which only by the late 1990s, early 2000, uh, uh, the United States realized uh, Europe as a military uh, rival was not to be taken seriously. In the economic field, initially, Maastricht also seemed to be promising uh, as far as European efforts were, were concerned. The Europeans talked about within um, uh, Agenda 2010 to make Europe the most productive and efficient uh, economy in the world by 2010 and all that sort of thing. And uh, initially that was taken very seriously in the United States. Also then in the late 1990s, the introduction of the euro was seen as something, here is a nation which gets together, which becomes a serious economic rival. But again, throughout the 1990s, America essentially was booming economically, what we now summarize with the dot-com revolution. At the same time, the Europe was largely in recession. And the Germans, the traditional locomotive of European growth, were severely burdened with German unification and having to uh, reconstruct the East and transferring an awful lot more money towards the East than had been expected. So Europe, even as an economic 
power was really disappointing. So by the early two, uh, I summarize them. So by the early 1990s, that notion of European integration becoming a serious rival to the United States in the economic field and in the military field had basically petered, petered out. And that, in a way, relaxed the United States. And that leads us, of course, then to the proclamation of that unilateral moment uh, uh, under the Bush administration. And the Bush administration became a little cocky, a little self-confident, also because of what had gone on in the 1990s. And, uh, you know, the neoconservatives had, of course, uh, carefully analyzed what was happening in Europe. And uh, in 2002, 2003, as Robert Kagan then wrote, it was concluded the Europeans are indeed from Venus and the Americans, the tough Americans, are from Mars. That meant the Europeans weren't really taken seriously as a power player. Um, and in addition, I believe... Uh, increasing value gaps had developed by that time um, about militarism, pacifism, about um, uh, multilateralism, unilateralism, and all that led to a severe clash between the transatlantic allies in the course of uh, the Bush administration. Even without the Iraq war, and of course it all climaxed because of the Iraq war, but even without the Iraq war, I don't think that transatlantic relations would have been particularly harmonious under the Bush administration. If you take out the Iraq war, there were still serious disputes about Kyoto, about steel tariffs, about uh, multilateral things, about the ICC, the International Criminal Court, about the United Nations. So there were lots of areas where the transatlantic allies under Bush disagreed profoundly. And then, of course, the Iraq war, uh, which antagonized many European countries, not all of them. You uh, have uh, Donald Rumsfeld's famous differentiation between old Europe and new Europe, counting the Brits as new Europe for some reason. Uh, but all European populations were opposed to the Iraq war. Some elites in countries like Britain and Spain and, and Italy under Berlusconi, they sided with Bush. But none of the European populations did. Not in Spain, not in Britain, not in Italy. Uh, so in a way you can say Europe was opposed to the Iraq war. And for political, rational reasons, like in the case of Tony Blair or missionary drive by Tony Blair, uh, who shared with Bush uh, his deep rel uh, religiosity um, that was different as far as the governments of some countries were concerned. But as such, as when you look at the European continent as such, there was a clear division between what the United States was doing and what Europe wished uh, to do. That leads me to um, Obama. And Obama has, of course, embarked on a new policy of engagement and so far... Um, um, transatlantic relations under Obama um, are a lot better than they were previously. Um, Obamania in Europe certainly contributed to exaggerated expectations regarding the new president's readiness and willingness to engage with the old continent. And correspondingly, and not surprisingly, Obama's limited foreign policy successes during his first year in office led to a great deal of frustration on the part of the Europeans. And in addition, the Europeans feel neglected because Obama is, of course, naturally dealing first with Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and China than uh, with, uh, with the Europeans. And in some respect, you can say that's actually good 
if there is no crisis in Europe, he doesn't have to deal with it, but if there is no crisis, then must be something good. But still the Europeans feel not taken seriously or they feel taken, uh, taken for granted. They feel neglected in, in one word. Um, I believe, as I wrote in a recent small piece, uh, that is exaggerated. I think Obama does not have the sentimental, emotional attachment to the European continent as had quite a few of his predecessors. Just think of Kennedy and his Irish roots, but even Ronald Reagan, who you know, was emotional about the Berlin Wall and called on Gorbachev to tear it down, and other presidents. You know, they had a deeper connection. Richard Nixon even, who felt because of his experience as a congressman when he toured the destructed uh, uh, European continent after you know, 1946, I think, um, they felt you know, special concern for Europe. That, I, I don't think, is there in Obama or uh, within his circle of advisors. But Obama is very much a realist and a pragmatist, as far as I can judge. And he realizes fully that the only, as I've called it, island of stability in the world is really what makes up the Europeans and the Americans, the transatlantic alliance. That in the last resort, the only partners he can rely upon when the going gets tough is, of course, not Russia or China or Iran, but it is, of course, the European countries. And therefore, I do believe that the transatlantic relation is not at an end. It has become, let's, let's say, less emotional and more pragmatic, but uh, it still is for very much rational reasons uh, the alliance of the past and I think uh, the alliance also of the future. Um, I think the administration's policy toward Europe, and I talk about the Obama administration now, it was perhaps best summarized by Vice President Joe Biden at the Munich Security Conference in February 2009. His mere attendance at the conference, of course, only a few weeks after Obama's inauguration, showed an interest in the European continent. And also Obama's six trips to Europe until now, I think, show a certain interest. Though, of course, two of these trips were to Copenhagen for the Olympics or the Olympic bit and for an, an, a climate summit. So there weren't really visits to Europe as such. Still, in Munich, Biden pointed out that the Obama administration believes that entering into international partnerships and acting within international alliances and organizations does not diminish American power. However, he also said that the good news is that America will do more, but the bad news is that America will ask for more from our partners as well. This, however, are not new sentiments. Whenever the United States is in dire straits, Europe is asked to do more. This is the case now. This was the case in the 1970s under the impact of the Vietnam War. When the U.S. feels strong, when the U.S. believes in a unilateral moment, as Charles Krauthammer proudly proclaimed, the Europeans are more or less sidelined. At, at such a time, they are viewed as being from Venus rather than from Mars, as I said. Of course, it must be hoped that Obama will not fall into this trap, that when uh, in international uh, circumstances pick up and get better, that he will still rely, want to rely on the Europeans. But on the whole, I would say that I'm not too pessimistic with regard to transatlantic relations. While one has to realize that the transatlantic uh, allies are less emotionally attached, are much more independent than they used to be, uh, that they're much more equal, without being really equal, of course, uh, 
in, in the end, both of them need each other, and they cannot do with it without each other. And therefore, not for sentimental or emotional reasons, but for very much realist, pragmatic reasons, I do think there's quite a future for the transatlantic alliance. Thanks very much. Sure. Yes, uh, if people have any questions, I'm very happy to try to answer them. Some people are scared and escaping. <laughs> yes, Peter. Yeah, but I actually, of course, the Vietnam War has had an, uh, an influence, and the Nixon administration, the Johnson administration, were not too pleased about the lack of support, and they criticized that. But they also recognized that the limited support, which had been forthcoming at least verbally, so for example, by the West German government or by the delivery of hospital ships, that that had actually led to severe domestic problems for uh, the West German governments, also for the British Wilson government, who had in a lukewarm way supported America's Vietnam policy. So on the whole, I actually believe um, that the non-support, uh, the military non-support during the Vietnam War was, of course, um, deplored in Washington, but didn't really have any severe repercussions regarding transatlantic relations as such. It was not appreciated, but it did not lead to a fundamental rethinking of the alliance. Um, when you go back uh, to another region, perhaps to the Middle East, then uh, also again during the Nixon administration, um, the Yom Kippur War, of course, uh, many European countries were on the side of the Arabs, at least tentatively, or didn't quite express a strong support for Israel as the American government and as both Israel and the United States would have liked to. Uh, but And that was criticized, that was deplored, but I don't think it undermined the substance of the transatlantic alliance. I think on the whole, and that is still true, the, 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 the American governments never have viewed Europe as a world player or as important in other areas of the world outside of Western Europe. That doesn't mean that when there were individual crises and the British could be helpful as a mediator or the French occasionally, that that wasn't made use of. But as a real factor, a real geopolitical factor, I don't think the Europeans were really taken all that seriously in the United States. Vice versa, that also meant, because they weren't taken seriously, any disagreements didn't lead to that uh, deep uh, Consequences because it didn't seem to be all that important anyway. Yes, please. Uh, you, you mentioned that Europeans feel neglected by Obama, and truly I have the same feeling as I was in Berlin last time. Um, no, but my question is what do Europeans expect from Obama, truly? What could um, the American current administration do for Europeans? so that they would feel that they are in a better shape? Well, <coughs> as I tried to say, the expectations were so high, or the disappointment was pushed so high, that 
anyone but Bush was, of course, the slogan. And Obama was, you know, even before he uh, became president, he was fated in Europe. He got the Nobel Peace Prize for no other reason than being Obama and not being Bush. Uh, it's pretty clear, you know, that would have not happened uh, to any other president or in different circumstances. Um, so I think the expectations were extremely high. It is almost natural that these expectations were disappointed, uh, particularly in a world where Obama has to deal with two wars on his hands, with international terrorism, with the rise of China as an economic competitor, to say the least, uh, and with no obvious crisis in Europe. So why would he continue traveling to Europe all the time or receive American prime, uh, European prime ministers? You know, he has only a limited, period, uh, limited uh, time on his hands. Um, on the other hand, of course, a few more warmer statements by Obama could have been made. Uh, you know, it's often a, a, I don't think it's a matter of he having to travel there more often, but simply that his emotional attachment would come across a little bit more warmly. And I think it is realized he really hasn't got anything in particular. He, you know, there's no personal liking for Europe. He wouldn't actually go on holiday on Europe if he had to choose a holiday destination, something like that. You know, like some presidents would always say, oh, we go to Ireland definitely, or we go to the south of France because they are, for some reason, are fascinated with these countries or their history. Uh, you wouldn't expect uh, Obama to do that, and that is being felt. Then the recent cancellation of the EU-America uh, uh, summit, which was meant to be taking place in May, in late May, which has been, uh, Obama cancelled his appearance, and then the, the European cancelled the entire summit. Um, that has, uh, in my view, that's only a minor rapture, but it went down in Europe extremely badly. And here in the United States, and I've talked to a few people, they saw it as much less of a big thing. The Europeans saw it as a really big thing. You know, the American president didn't bother to come to a summit EU-US. That had never happened before. All previous presidents had always shown up twice a year often, uh, and Obama had come last November, I think it was, and he got bored. He didn't think the, 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 that was more photo op than anything else. Nothing constructive seemed to be discussed. So why bother? You know, he has a lot, uh, enough other things to do. Why bother to go to a photo, a photo app opportunity? That was the perception here in the U.S. And then they felt that the Spanish hadn't really consulted them properly. They just decided or announced the American president and the EU were meeting, and the Americans hadn't really been, uh, you know, given their official agreement. So they were a bit miffed as well. And all that basically led them to cancel the whole thing or indicate Obama wouldn't be coming. And um, that is, of course, uh, not good, uh, but I don't think it really, in two years' time, hardly anyone will remember. So I don't think it has very little to do with the actual substance of uh, transatlantic relations. But the big point is Afghanistan. And here the Europeans feel resentful that the Obama administration is pushing and pushing and pushing for more troops. And the Americans want to have the Europeans to do more. I've talked to that uh, Pentagon official, and he said, well, we are actually quite happy with what we got. We never expected to get all that much, that something came at all. The Germans, I think, another 500 troops, the French, something similar, more money, more police troops. You know, you know they said, well, we asked for 2,000, but we basically expected to get zero, and then 500 or 600 were forthcoming, we thought it was already pretty good. But, uh, you know, there is a mutual resentment that the uh, Europeans are not doing enough in Afghanistan, that they don't view Afghanistan as a common Western enterprise, that they don't really see why should we be in Afghanistan, what's the point. And the Americans, of course, see it as the defense of the Western world, of the 
you know, if you don't do anything about Afghanistan and Pakistan, the entire Western world may be exposed to more terrorist onslaught. So they see it as a, as a common enterprise where everyone should be participating in. And that is not shared in Europe. And that is being resented and uh, makes for a certain coolness. And I think Afghanistan is probably the biggest problem in transatlantic relations right now. It's not uh, Iran where they cooperate quite well. Uh, it is not China or North Korea where cooperation, I think, is also quite decent. It's not trade relations, but it really is uh, the lack of support in Afghanistan. And there is a mutual misunderstanding or mutual lack of understanding. The Europeans don't see it as that important simply, while the Americans think it is of crucial importance. Yes, please. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what the United States now seeks from Western European allies and Eastern European allies? What they want from them? Well, support, basically support, um, certainly moral support, political support, but they want to go beyond that. They want hard-nosed support. You know, basically the attitude is Europe is free now, it's independent now, the threat of the Soviet Union is gone. Europe should really get its act together and become a world player, become an important player in the world. Of course, not someone who is competing with the United States, but someone who is supporting the United States, but who should really have a voice in world affairs and should not just focus on European affairs, on navel-gazing, on EU internal matters like the uh, economic policies of the EU or the Greek crisis, which is, of course, distracting the Europeans from thinking about Afghanistan. But the United States really feels the, the Europeans should face up to the international responsibility as the largest market in the world, as population-wise larger, more populous than the United States, uh, they should really you know, get the act together and be helpful in the international field. And con uh, concretely, that means particularly in Afghanistan, um, but of course also in other areas of the world, whatever comes about. Yes? Uh, is it political support, economic support? Both. It's everything. And in Afghanistan, military support, hard-nosed military support, uh, troops. Of course, also political support uh, and uh, financial support, definitely. But also, you know, not like in the past, the Europeans give a little bit of money and the, uh, the Americans do the rest. But both, you know, be an active world player, which means you also send your troops if necessary. And you uh, get, of course, political responsibility in return. Um, uh, in a way, of course, in the past, the United States would not have done that. To now, as you know, the, the German government is encouraged to become a world player, become military involved. Only 10 or 20 years ago, everyone would have said, oh, the Germans shouldn't really send troops anywhere. We are glad if the Germans don't, have, don't send troops. That has changed totally. Um, one reason is the more difficult situation the United States find itself in. When you are in dire straits yourself, economically, uh, lack of troops and things, and of course you look around and see, oh, they are our allies. Let's ask our allies to become a little bit more active in a, you know, in a really concrete way. And that is, in a way, totally natural. But the Europeans have to get used to that world rule, and there's a lot of um, lack of interest, lack of will to do that. And uh, it's not just elite perception. I think the elite is probably more prepared to become involved 
than uh, the population is. And if you take the German example again, the government is very reluctant, but less reluctant than public opinion. Public opinion in Germany is severely, uh, and all throughout all uh, um, strata of society, be they more left-wing or more conservative, they're all strongly opposed to sending troops abroad. Uh, they do that only in very exceptional circumstances. They certainly want to have their troops withdrawn from Afghanistan. Of course, historical factors play a role, simply the factor that, of course, soldiers get killed, which is bad as such. Uh, and then also the lack of understanding why we, meaning the West, is actually involved in Afghanistan. And then the, uh, another factor is a little bit of resentment. It is clear if the United States had looked after Afghanistan after the Taliban were uh, deposed in um, two, 2002, 2001, um, um, uh, instead of going to war against Iraq, we uh, we have in Afghanistan now. So the Europeans say, well, the Americans were so stupid to focus on the, to invade Iraq rather than look after their concerns in Afghanistan. Now, after they committed that huge mistake, we are being called upon to help them out. Why? They should have, you know, basically learned uh, or realized what they were doing uh, early on. And that, of course, doesn't get you anyway, that kind of past resentment. But it, And the politicians are beyond that. You wouldn't hear that from, uh, from German or European politicians. But public opinion or some of the media, that is still at least underlying. You know, people don't really want to be in, involved in Afghanistan for a number of reasons, but also for the reason they don't really understand or want to understand why the fight in Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, seems to be necessary. Yes, please. Well, it's always interesting to speculate what would have happened. You know, if Hitler hadn't come to power, where would we be today? You know, and things like that. It's difficult to say. Um, I mean, personal relations um, are, of course, not everything, but they do play a large role. And uh, Carter was not respected among many European uh, politicians. And his economic policy, not as a person, but because of his political decisions, both in the economic field and then also in, in his dealings with the Soviet Union. And after the first few months or six months, uh, 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 they lost kind of respect. And they had that respect for Ford, who they re, uh, regarded as more as calmer, as, as more considerate, as uh, having a wider horizon, and also as, being, as relying more on his advisors, who did not claim that he knew it all by himself. He both consulted his advisors quite intensively and also his European allies. And, of course, when you get consulted, you feel better. It's a nice feeling if the superpower consults you. And you also, of course, if you give advice, and at least some of that advice is then actually taken up, you feel, of course, then responsible. Then you can't then turn around and attack the superpowers because some of your advice has actually been incorporated. With Carter, that never was the case. He usually ignored the Europeans, or the advice given was certainly not taken on board. And then, of course, that leads to more antagonism, leads to greater opposition. And um, 
and Qatar uh, also had the misfortune that economic relation, uh, economic circumstances got a lot worse. There was a second oil crisis. There was the Iran hostage crisis, you know, which you had to deal with. And that all was uh, more benign under Ford. So in a way, you can say Ford also was luckier in international uh, terms than Qatar was. Whether uh, Ford would have sustained that good relationship, I don't know, because the going got tougher, and I'm sure Ford, for economic reasons, would have become more criticized than he was when he actually was in office. But he had better relations, and that may have calmed down some flaring of tempers which we saw under, under Carter. That, for example, at a meeting in Venice, was it 1980? There was an economic summit in Venice where Carter and uh, Chancellor Schmidt shouted each other over the conference table. And really loudly, when I say shout, it's not saying a few unkind words. They were really shouting at each other. And you probably it would have been difficult to see that with Ford. You know, that wouldn't have happened. Was it that decisive? I don't know. Probably not, but it was symbolic for the state of the relationship. Yes, please. Sure. My question is that last time, last September, Robert Pate was here and I asked the question of it essentially, should you, should I get rid of my advance role from the book? Because it's 30 years old. No, it's very sensible. And I'm tempted to ask, I'm still compelled to ask this question. Um, that I, it feels like it wants to be called all geopolitics is local. Mm-hmm. In a sense that, like in the immediate post war period, labor unions took a beating in the U.S., social democracy was supported by the U.S. in Domestic institutions or what? Rich institutions? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I agree. To, I agree, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I agree, of course, that all politics is local. I mean, what I talk about the turning point in the 1970s. Nixon was severely influenced in his um, economic impatience by rising unemployment numbers, by inflation. Uh, he was always thinking of the next election, the next presidential election um, in 72. By 71, he was getting really nervous that unemployment was not coming down. The American economy was giving the perception of going down rather than up. That immensely influenced him as far as the abolition of the Bretton Woods system was concerned or the uh, so-called Nixon shocks, which imposed tariffs on European goods coming into, or foreign goods coming into the United States, but a large number of them, of course, European. Uh, He wanted to display to the American consumer and voter that he, as president, would take a strong line against uh, foreign uh, competition, that American goods would have his support and the Amer- American jobs, of course, American production. 
And uh, so he was totally influenced by what was happening on the ground in the United States. And in the last resort, he decided that is more important than, let's say, good relations with our allies. And uh, he adopted quite tough economic uh, uh, policy, which the Europeans, you know, found very unacceptable, found outrageous and but they couldn't do anything in the, in the last resort, and that was influenced by uh, local uh, American uh, factors. If that answers your question. Any? I've exhausted all of you. <laughs> <laughs>